reading is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 31 through 53. It is found in your pew Bibles on page 882. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, there are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you might not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you watched that baptism this morning and you have any questions about it, uh, on the table on the way out of the narthex, we've taken away our book table for the Bible school this week. But you'll find this booklet uh, written by this very good-looking athletic Presbyterian minister that some of you know. Uh, but it, it answers your questions, and I would encourage you to pick it up, and it's just a gift from me this morning, so you can't lose. Uh, if you have questions about it, I would be glad to talk with you about it. Thank you. Let's pray together. Our Father, it's so good to look out and 
We see Jim Bennington and Billy Griggs here this morning. We thank you for them, for their witness, for their faithful, faithful, faithful testimony. We pray at this time of their lives that you would give them strength physically, give them strength of mind and body, but most important, Father, give them strength of soul. We pray that they will look forward with anticipation to what's ahead, for there is a place prepared. Now, fathers, we open your word. We pray that you would speak to each and every person here. Father, I can't speak so that it will make any difference in their lives or our lives. And Father, you know I mean that. You know that I know that. And we know that together as a congregation. And so we pray in these next few minutes that we would hear your voice, each and every one of us would hear your voice in our hearts, maybe for the first time in our lives, maybe for the 10,000th time in our lives. We pray that you would change us from the inside out as we hear your word for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. For the last four weeks, now five weeks, we have been in the upper room with those disciples, with Jesus, where the Passover supper was kept for the last time and the Lord's supper was initiated. We've gone through line by line and there there's, are three or four verses there from verse 35 to 38 on your scripture sheet that are recorded nowhere else in the gospels. I want, we're going to look at those verses in detail this morning. In verse 36, he said, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Most ministers preaching through, look, those are strange words. Very strange. They, they, they don't sound like Jesus. Most ministers preaching through Luke avoid these verses. Or if they give anything to it, it's, it's very, very brief. Most commentaries in the same way. I only found one message dedicated specifically just to these verses. Yet, in Luke's account, these are the last words he spoke in the upper room, or the first words he spoke just after he left the upper room. I personally think that these words are important to the evangelical church in the United States in 2019. Jesus here was repeating a theme that he stressed to his disciples over the last part of his ministry, over these last few days in Jerusalem. Even recently in Luke 21, just a few days before this, in Luke 21, he spoke similar words to the disciples. If Jesus kept repeating this theme, with those disciples, if Jesus recorded, if, if Luke recorded Jesus returning to the theme again and again, if this is the last word he spoke in the upper room, we would be ill-advised to skip it. In this passage, Jesus is once more calling his disciples to ignominy. That's a word that means humiliation, to shame. We don't think about that, Christ calling us to humiliation, Christ calling us to shame. Jesus calls his disciples, folks, to ignominy. To understand these verses, we must first put them in the context. As I said, they're spoken either in the upper room or just after they left the upper room. 
In discussing, Jesus had, had told the disciples in the upper room, one of you is a traitor. Here are these 12 men. They've been together for three years. One of you will betray me. One of them was a traitor. In discussing which one would do such the thing, the disciples slipped into a debate about who would be the greatest. That sounds like us, doesn't it? Who will be the greatest? Who will be the most stalwart of the followers of Christ? Who will be closest to him when he comes into his kingdom? That's when Jesus said, Peter, and Peter was the, the leader of the disciples, wasn't he? So he would represent all the disciples. That's when Jesus looked at even the leader of the disciples that no one could comprehend would betray him and said, Peter, even you will deny me Deny that you even know me. You'll swear that you don't even know me before the sun rises tomorrow morning. The disciples did not understand. Even then, they were, they were less than 24 hours from the cross. And they didn't understand what lay immediately before them. They were still looking at being great heroes who had been with the Messiah from the beginning, certainly he's going to the palace, certainly he's going to take the power with all of his supernatural power. He'll take the power. And we're going to be there. Faithful to him. We've been with him since the beginning. There was a great chasm between their vision of the future and what Christ knew would happen in the future. So Jesus told them one more time. Here they were looking at going to the palace and becoming men who reign. Jesus was looking toward going to a cross. So once more he spoke to them. Look at verse 35. When I sent you out earlier as my emissaries, I told you to carry no supplies. Jesus was referring to a short-term mission trip, a short-term short training period when he set, sent the twelve out in Galilee, to the different cities to minister in his name. And when he sent them out, he had told them, take nothing with you. He wanted them to learn to depend upon him for their every need. And so he asked them, when I sent you out before, that night he said, when I sent you out before, did you lack anything when you went out, when I told you not to take anything? They said, no, we didn't lack a thing. And then Jesus said this, and this is so strange. He says, well, now, Peter, now, Matthew, now, John, I tell you, you better take a purse with you. You better take and carry a purse with all your money. You better take a backpack. You better take a knapsack in which to carry your provisions, for you will need everything you can carry. It's going to be so tough that you better sell your garments and buy a sword. Does that sound like Jesus? You better sell, Peter, you better sell your coat. Get a sword. Why did he say that? The disciples in three years had never heard him say such words. Well, step into Jesus' sandals. He was about to be arrested. He would be indicted as a criminal. He would be tried. He would be judged by the court. He would be sentenced to die. He would be taken to a place of crucifixion and executed with two criminals. And he knew all of that. And they didn't. The key sentence in understanding these verses is in verse 37. Look at it. Stay with me now. This is so important. For I tell you, 
that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. What scripture? And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that, for what is written about me, has its fulfillment. He said, that was written by Isaiah and it's going to be fulfilled in me right now. He was numbered with the transgressors. Now, we usually hear those words and what do we think? We think about, well, Jesus was numbered with the transgressions. He took our sins upon himself. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He took our guilt and he took our judgment. So he was numbered with the transgressors. And that fits the meaning in Isaiah. It really does. But that's not what Jesus was saying here. Often we say, well, is this scripture saying this or this? And sometimes we have to answer it's saying both. Sometimes scripture speaks on two or three levels at the same time. And it's not that one contradicts the other. It's that all three are true. Now, Jesus knew God would number him with the transgressors. That's what he had come to do. He'd come to give his life a ransom for many. But that's not how Jesus meant it here. Jesus was saying to disciples, the disciples, you don't understand. The world will crucify me as a criminal. The world will not look. The Sanhedrin will not look at me on the cross. The Romans will not look at me on the cross and say, there's the Savior of the world. There's the Son of God. They will look at me and say, there's a criminal. That's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, Peter, Matthew, John, I will be crucified as a criminal. In the world's eyes, I'll be numbered as a criminal. I'm going to die between two thieves, not two martyrs. I'm going to die between two thieves. In these verses, Jesus was calling his disciples and said, this is going to be tough. That's why you're going to have to need these things. The world's going to count, just as the world counted me as a criminal, the world's going to count you as a criminal. He was calling them to a life of ignominy. I'm disturbed by the way the evangelical church today speaks to the disciples of Jesus or presents the gospel to the world. Too often we do this, and we mean well by it, and I've been guilty of it. Follow Jesus. He'll straighten out your marriage. There's people that come to church, they don't care about forgiveness of sins. I'm just here to get my marriage straightened out. Follow Jesus. He will make you better parents to your children. Follow Jesus. He will make you financially solvent. Follow Jesus. He'll enrich your relationship. Now, all those things may happen as you follow the word of God. But that's not the gospel. That's not the call of the gospel. To attract the world, and I hear it all the time. To attract the world, we say, come and drink coffee and hang out with Jesus. Be comfortable with him. Kick back with him. He's anti-institutional. He's anti-authority. He's a millennial. Living with Jesus is a cool ride. The Jesus of the gospel says, if you want to follow me, you must die to your will. You must, you must die to the way you do things. You must die to self. You must crucify the will. You must live under someone else's authority. Deny yourself. He said the world is filled with evil. And just as the world looked at me to arrest the gospel and to arrest me, the world will look at you if you follow me and address you. Look in, look, look in your scripture sheet at Luke twenty-two fifty-three. When they came to arrest Jesus, what did Jesus say? 
when I was with you day after day in the temple. He's just saying, you know, he's saying these people come to arrest him. At midnight, in the darkness of Gethsemane, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. He said, you represent the power of Satan. You represent the power of darkness. You represent the power of evil. And to whom he was speaking? He was speaking to the religious leaders and the civic leaders of Jerusalem. That's to whom he was speaking. Folks, this is a call to ignominy to the disciples. I believe Jesus still says to this. You say, well, this is immediately before the crucifixion. No. He's saying you live in the middle of a dark world that will always be trying to arrest the gospel. Now, is this because Christians are true criminals? Are Christians true lawbreakers? Are we mean, cruel people from whom the society must be protected? Of course not. But Jesus is saying the world will always be coming to arrest the gospel. They will not believe God came in the flesh. They will not believe that man's a sinner who needs a savior. They will not accept that they must bow down before a crucified Jew. They will not accept that they are sinners who need a bloody sacrifice for sin. They will not believe that God is so just that someone must pay for the transgressions of men against God. The world, he was saying, will always come and arrest that gospel. When I was in homiletics course at Columbia Seminary, Columbia Seminary is a training school for ministers. It's three year, usually a three-year education after college. And I was at Columbia Seminary. It was a very liberal school. They were moving away from the cardinal doctrines of Scripture. The homiletics course is a course in preaching. And so I was assigned by the professor to preach on a passage that dealt with the cross. Now, he wanted me to say that Jesus died a martyr. He wanted me to say that Jesus died because he was a radical reformer in his day. Now, I refused to do that. I was faithful to Scripture. I said that Jesus died as, as a sacrificial lamb sent by God to atone for our sins. In the critique afterward, the professor told me that it was now the 20th century. He said, John, Mr. Sartell, your sermon, your message was primitive, has no meaning to the 20th century. He said, I could no longer speak of the blood of Jesus. If that, what was that professor doing? He was arresting the gospel. He was saying, you can't do that. I want to show you something. The fulfillment of what Jesus said there in Luke 22, in those three or four short verses. Look at Acts 4, 1 through 3 on your scripture sheet. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. This is just a few days after Pentecost. It's only a few weeks after Jesus spoke these words to them. And it's not only Jesus had been arrested and crucified, but now they were arresting his disciples. This was fulfilled. John, Peter and John, this is what happened to them. Peter and John. This is a call to ignominy. You will be arrested also. Am I saying to you that until you're arrested for the sake of the gospel, you really haven't got it? No. <laughs> Even though I think 
that it would make more of an impression today than we do preaching some kind of anemic gospel. What I am saying is what I think Jesus was saying to disciples. It's easy to hold on to a false version of the gospel. If we go to the world with the gospel, and you know this, the world will not sing your praises and exalt you as, as true followers of Christ. But that's all right. If you're faithful, if you preach the gospel in our present situation, I can tell you, the world's not going to react. Or, you know that The world around you is not going to be positive toward you. But you know what? The gospel says that's all right. That's a good place to stand. Go stand underneath the cross. He calls us to that. I have used Hebrews 13, 11 through 13. And so don't any of you come to me and say, you know, John, that's the third time in about five weeks you've used that passage. I already know that. And I may use it again next week. Okay. But I want you to look at Hebrews 13, 11 through 13, where the writer of Hebrews calls us to this. Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places for the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Do you hear it? And bear, let's go outside the camp. Go stand underneath the cross. You see, even the animals who were sacrificed in a temple, what was left of their bodies was burned outside the camp. That meant out in the wilderness, out on the garbage dump. If you were outside the camp, you were considered an outcast. It was a reproach to be out there. The writer uses that analogy. He said Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. He was crucified at Golgotha, the garbage dump of Jerusalem, a place of execution where criminals were executed. That's where he was executed. That's where the cross was, was established. He said, let's go without, let's go outside the camp. Let's go outside the city. Let's go to the place of shame and stand. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you two questions, really. Have you ever individually gone to the cross, the place of reproach, the place of ridicule, the place where religious and civic leaders still mock him? I want to stop there for a minute. I didn't plan on this, but Friday afternoon, I was in a committal service at the Veterans Cemetery for a young man who, who died in November. And we just had his, his committal service. And afterward, I was sitting and eating with the family, and there was a man there that I didn't know, young man there that I didn't know, young father. And he was from Illinois. And as he talked, as we talked, he didn't know the message I would be preaching. But I had to smile. Because he said, this is a, a really good person, very positive person, person you, you would like. And he said, 
he, he started speaking about how around him in Illinois, there's a hostility to the gospel. He was talking about the 21st century. He was talking about our culture, our society. And I walked away and I said, thank you, Father. I think that was the whole reason that, that, that I was there, to hear him speak like that. That's what he was saying. Have you gone and stood at the cross? As our culture walks away from his word, walks away from scripture, says it's ridiculous. They stood underneath the cross. If he's the son of God, let him come down. He saved others. He cannot save himself. They're still saying that. Of course, he's not the son of God. Have you ever gone to the cross as a sinner, even while the world scoffed, even with their scoffing and spittle, and stood underneath that cross and said, Jesus, Lamb of God, Savior of sinners, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. I trust in you alone for my salvation. Second question. As a follower of Jesus, do you pitch your tent every morning and every evening outside the camp Underneath the cross. Is that where you're camped? I mean, do you do this at the University of Memphis, at the University of Tennessee, the medical school, Fayette Academy, or in public school, with your neighbor at the club, at the farm, in the field, on the golf course, at the gym, on the football field, on the basketball court? Are you, have you pitched your tent underneath that shameful cross? We want, all of us want to be accepted. We want the world to like us. We want to be called the educated elite. We want to be numbered with the intellectuals. We want to be numbered with the in crowd. And somehow we've, we've either got to adjust the gospel or just remain silent so that we'll be accepted. That's really cool. Clarence Jordan, he died in 1969. He's a very unusual character. He was a farmer, and yet he was a New Testament Greek scholar. He was founder of Koinea Farm. It's a, it was a small religious community, Christian community in southwest Georgia. He was author of the Cotton Patch Version of the Gospels. He was instrumental in the founding of the Habitat for Humanity. He earned a Ph.D. from Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. He was visiting a church. He knew this minister. The minister was a friend. And the church had just been completed, this beautiful sanctuary. And the, the minister showed him this cross that stood over the sanctuary. It was a beautiful cross. And the minister said to Jordan, that cross cost us $10,000. Jordan said, that's unusual. You can get one from Jesus free. You say, what about those swords, John? Sell your garments by a sword. We know Jesus was speaking figuratively. He was saying this, obviously, you have no idea what you're facing. You're facing a hostile world that you cannot imagine that will try to crucify you. But Jesus had never mentioned buying swords. He had never given them lessons in hand-to-hand -hand combat. When they, they said, well, we have two swords here. And Jesus, when he said, Jesus said enough, he was saying, Guys, you still don't get it. I've had enough. I've had enough of you. And just walked away. In the garden, they came to arrest Jesus. And what did Peter do? He drew one of those two swords and 
whack, look there in John 18, 10 and 11. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put up your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? If something happened to Peter. In Acts 2, Jesus or Peter is faced with the largest crowd he had ever seen. Thousands of people. And they're the very people that had shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Very people in the same city. He drew another sword. He drew the sword of the word of God and he began to preach. I want to show you one verse that he spoke and it says it all. Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's our message to the world. The Jesus you crucified, the Jesus of the gospels that you're trying to arrest, God has made him Lord and Christ. 3,000 people were slain by the gospel that day. He didn't just cut off an ear. 3,000 people. Their hearts were changed. It was the beginning of the church. Of Jesus Christ. You see Peter understood. He went and stood. In the place of ignominy. He went and stood in the place of shame. And he said that's my savior. He's Lord and he's Christ. You see. That place of ignominy. Go stand there. That place. Of ignominy. Is a place of incredible. Our hymn is most appropriate in Christ alone.